Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Moments of truth could only awaken or doesn't create anything. It just reveals something that's always been there. You know, you can have families that are don't get along so well. In a moment of truth, they lose a loved one, and all of a sudden, all the depth between the depth of the love between between the loved ones and the family emerges. A crisis doesn't create anything new. It just reveals something that's always been there, but it's been buried. It's been hidden on a subconscious level, and then suddenly it emerges and surfaces. But when a person discovers the depth and the power of the force and the will to live in the moment of truth, in the moment of crisis, when your life is threatened, and suddenly it hits home with such power, the will to live, and it will, t- it will totally change your life. It's in those moments that the truth emerges and the truth hits home. But it just reveals something that's there all along. It's always true. Like when a person is asleep, every, all the faculties are present. It's just, they're dormant. And the same is in a marriage. Let's say marriage is a little cold or a little stale. You don't treat each other with the proper respect when it comes to the small things, small areas in your life. But then you realize that no matter what, you're going to remain faithful. Even if you're tempted, you're going to remain faithful. So why are you going to remain faithful? That's a red line you'll never cross. So what does that mean? That means that there's a marriage. There's a relationship, there's a connection, a very strong connection, a very powerful connection. So once you awaken to that reality, you awaken to that fact, then, just like you wouldn't do anything to sever that connection, you wouldn't be unfaithful, so why would I do something small to insult, to humiliate, to ridicule, to dismiss, if this marriage is so the connection, the soul connection is so deep and so profound that under no circumstances, even for a moment, you're not ready, you would never be unfaithful even for a moment. So obviously you have very deep, intense feelings for each other. So why, why would you do even a small thing to hurt each other? So you have to awaken to the reality of what's going on. And once you become awake to the reality, then even a small thing, anything that can disconnect you or can diminish the relationship or harm the relationship you run away from with the same intensity. Why cross that line? So too with our Jewishness. Once a Jew realizes that being Jewish is the core and essence of our being, our marriage to God, our relationship to God is so deep and so intense and so profound that under no circumstances are we ready even for a brief moment, just for a moment, just for a split second, just externally, superficially, just to bow down to the idol, just for a moment. It's not an option. So if, if our Jewishness means so much to us, so 
if we become awakened to that reality, then even a minor transgression, a minor prohibition, whether biblical or rabbinic, anything, why would I do anything to, to harm or to diminish this, this, this relationship? And that becomes, a, uh, that becomes a red line that I won't cross. So once you're awakened to your inner self, to your real reality, your truth, your natural self, your true reality, then even the minor mitzvahs becomes imbued with a certain intensity that this is a red line that I won't cross. Why would I cross? It's inconsistent. Why would I be inconsistent with myself? And then you become consistent. Just like I won't be unfaithful, so I won't even do anything minor that can disconnect me or diminish or take away from this beautiful relationship. So up until this point we discussed the negative, how we won't do anything to interrupt or to disconnect from a relationship, a vibrant relationship that already exists. Here we're going to add, once you become awakened to this relationship, then let me do anything in my power to strengthen the relationship. Not only won't I do anything to diminish the relationship, to harm the relationship, to sever the relationship, to weaken the relationship, to disconnect, I'll do everything I can in a very active way, in a very dynamic way, in a very vibrant way. I'll do anything I can to strengthen, to intensify the relationship, to become closer, more intimate. And then it becomes like pouring kerosene on the fire. The more you do, the more active you become, the more you do to strengthen the relationship, the more attention you pay, and the more actions you take to strengthen the relationship, then it only increases, intensifies, and it keeps on growing and growing and growing. So it's not just passive that I will avoid doing any sin, but actually this becomes a powerful drive and motivation to actively pursue this relationship. So it wakes you up. Once you awake, then you become active and vibrant and dynamic. That's what he discusses here. Top of page 334. Likewise, in the category of doing good, one can employ the power of his hidden love to strengthen himself like a lion with might and determination of heart against the evil nature which weighs down his body and casts over him a sloth which stems from the element of earth that is in his animal soul. This laziness prevents him from exerting his body energetically with every type of effort and strain in the service of God that entails effort and toil. For example, to labor in the Torah with deep concentration and also orally so that, quote, his mouth will never cease from Torah study, end quote. As our sages have said, a man should always submit to the words of Torah like the ox to the yoke and the ass to the load. It's also a qualitative difference how you do the mitzvah. Serving Hashem is not just doing the right thing, doing the bare minimum. Technically, in a court of law, you've done the right thing, but you're asleep. There's no um, there's no energy. There's no strength. There's no intensity. You can sleepwalk through life. So you're doing everything, but it's asleep, half asleep. Your mind is half asleep. You're not present. You're not investing yourself. You're not really, really investing yourself. When you learn Torah. So firstly, it's not just thinking the Torah. It's actually making sure to learn the Torah, to say it, to verbalize the Torah. 
takes effort. And more importantly, it takes effort to fully concentrate, everyone on their own level, everyone on their own level, to totally concentrate your mind, that the Torah that you learn should fully engage your mind. It should tax your mind. It should exhaust you. You should be tired afterwards because you're really, you're really engaged, fully engaged to the best of your ability, everyone on their own level. It's very personal, very subjective. But you have to throw yourself completely into the, into the Torah study. Your mind has to be totally focused, not reading superficially and externally and your mind is elsewhere. But when you're studying Torah, you're total immersion in the Torah. That means really focusing your mind. and takes tremendous discipline and effort to really learn Torah and to really... You should, as the Arizal, the Arizal, when he would study Torah, the greatest Kabbalist that ever lived, any law in the Torah that he studied, he would study until he would actually sweat. He would physically sweat. He would engage his mind until he would physically sweat. It was such hard labor to really focus your mind and challenge your mind and really get into it. Do you truly understand it? Do you, you know, not superficially and externally. That's not called learning Torah. Learning Torah means to, to fully engage. Does it engage your mind? Does your mind truly get it? Do you truly understand it? And that, that means serving Hashem. That means being awake. Studying Torah with alacrity, with enthusiasm, with, with excitement, with, with, with your mind, total focus, total concentration. That takes work. That takes effort. That means being awake versus being asleep. So just like most people sleepwalk through life, even if you're doing the right thing, you can also sleepwalk. It's asleep. It's half asleep. The whole emphasis of the Hasidic movement was that whatever you do, you should do with your entire being. Total commitment. If you're doing it, your full mind is fully engaged. Your heart is fully engaged. Every fiber of your being, every bone in your body, you're fully engaged. Just like a marriage. A marriage is, it fully engages your whole being. Intimacy fully engages your whole being. So once you realize that you have this intimate relationship with Hashem, then it should fully engage your whole being. Which is one of the reasons why, one of the characteristics of the Jew is when he prays, when he studies Torah, he shakes, he shuckles. That's the Yiddish word. For people who are not used to it, it's very disconcerting. <laughs> He's always shaking and shuckling. You know, most people sit still. Especially when they're involved in intellectual pursuit. You walk into a university room, everyone is sitting still. They don't see you. Sitting and shaking and chuckling. You walk into Yeshiva, they're engaged in the deepest, deepest intellectual, intellectually engaging discussions, and everyone is shaking and chuckling. When the Jew prays, instead of sitting quiet in meditation, the Jew is shaking and chuckling. Because the Bashamta said, it's like intimacy. When you're intimate, your body moves. A Jew is intimate with Hashem. When you have such a relationship with Hashem, it engages every fiber of your being, every bone in your body. As King David says, I speak the words of praise of Hashem with, with my, all my bones in my body, with every fiber of my being, every bone in my body. So once you realize you have this relationship, don't just reserve it for moments of truth, for emergencies, for crisis. Wake up to that truth. Wake up to that reality. Once you become awake to that reality, then you want to serve Hashem. When you're praying, it's a moment of intimacy. So it engages every fiber of your being. You're total, totally focused on the prayer. When you're studying Torah, you're totally focused on the learning. And it fully engages your mind. 
and it taxes him. And it's work. It exhausts you. As the uh, Talmudic sages say, a person has to submit to the words of Torah, like an axe to the yoke. It has to be like a load. It has to be like, an, like a yoke. It has to be effort, work. A person who breezes through, because he has a good head, so he just breezes through. And maybe he can understand it much better than someone who has to work hard, but he has not fulfilled, he's not studying Torah properly. When is he considered, when is it considered that you study Torah properly? When everyone on their own level feels like it's a yoke, you really tax yourself. You're really fully engaged in your mind, in the studying of Torah. You're fully present and fully engaged. Which explains why the Talmud says, everyone stops learning Torah in order to hear the reading of the Megillah. The battle in Talmud Torah, you nullify, you stop learning Torah in order to hear the reading of the Megillah on Purim. The story of the Megillah, the story of Esther. And the obvious question is, what do you mean you stop learning Torah to hear the Megillah? What exactly is, reading, is hearing the Megillah? <laughs> We're reading a newspaper. Megillah is Torah. It's one of the 24 books of the Torah. <laughs> That's not Torah. What is Torah? What do you mean you stop learning Torah in order to read the Megillah? And reading the Megillah is not Torah. And the Rebbe explains that what's called nullifying of learning Torah, just like if you had a minute to study Torah, you had an opportunity to study Torah, and you missed that opportunity, that's called not studying Torah. So too qualitatively wise, if let's say the Torah, just like if you had an opportunity to study for 23 hours and 59 minutes of Torah, you had an opportunity to study 24 hours. Instead, you only studied 23 and 59 minutes. So you, you wasted a minute of time. You had a minute of time that you wasted. You could have studied Torah and you didn't. So too, in a, in a qualitative sense, if a person has the opportunity to study with 100% of your mind, being fully engaged, instead you only invest 99% of your mind, 1% is asleep. That's also called nullifying. In a qualitative way, it's called nullifying of Torah. You have not studied Torah. Torah has to engage you 100% every waking moment, every moment you have, a free moment, and it also has to engage you qualitatively-wise, it has to fully engage you 100% of your being. So for, imagine a person who's engaged in studying the deepest parts of Torah, and instead, he reads the Megillah. Just reading the Megillah, hearing the story. He's not hearing a lecture in the Megillah, he's coming to the synagogue. Here, the reading of the Megillah, the story of the Megillah. So for someone who's used to, already is familiar with the Torah, and is engages in studying the Torah in a very deep way, in a fully engaging way, this, is, this could be called not learning Torah, nullifying of the Torah. And yet the Torah says that everyone has to close the books and come to Shul and hear the Megillah and hear it together with everyone else. That's what the sages mean. A Jew has to submit to the words of Torah like an axe to the yoke. If it's not taxing, if you don't feel challenged, if you don't feel it's taxing, and you have to exceed yourself, and you have to rise to the occasion, and really work hard, exert yourself, then you haven't studied Torah properly.
So a Jew has to be awake. You have to be awake instead of being lazy or being asleep. You have to wake up. Study Torah, but be awake. Be fully alert, awake, engaged, present. Okay, continue. Similarly, with regard to devout prayer, he should exert himself with all the strength he can muster. Prayer. Prayer is not just mouthing the words and going 90 miles an hour and racing to the exit <laughs> and looking at your watch. Prayer has to engage you. Prayer is a time to connect, to connect with God. Prayer has to stir your soul. We shake during prayer. Prayer is our moment of intimacy with Hashem. Prayer is the moment when we awaken this love that He is discussing here. Prayer is, is when you waken yourself up. Because when you wake up in the morning, that spark that's located at the center of your being is asleep. Or it's dormant. You, don't, you can't access it. You don't sense it. You don't sense its force, its power, its reality, its truth. In prayer... You become conscious of this hidden love, of this intimacy, this relationship we have with Hashem, and you allow this love to emerge into surface. So prayer is a, is a gradual, step-by-step um, approach where you reach one level of consciousness and a higher level of consciousness until this core and essence fully emerges and surfaces. So prayer is the time when you awaken yourself up. So you have to exert yourself with all your strength. You have to focus. You have to concentrate. The difference between prayer and studying of Torah. When you study Torah, you feel like a student sitting at the feet of his teacher. God is our teacher and we are students. We're studying his wisdom. When you pray, you feel like a child talking to your father. And the difference between prayer and Torah when you study Torah, you always have to learn something new, fresh, new information. Every day you learn something new. If you just sat all day and just repeated everything that you already know, you haven't fulfilled the mitzvah of studying Torah. The mitzvah of studying Torah, in addition to repeating and making sure that you memorize everything you've studied before, primarily is you have to learn, every day you have to learn something new, new information. In prayer, you don't learn anything new. As a matter of fact, it's the exact same words you repeat each and every day, thousands and thousands and thousands of times. Because in prayer, I'm not here to learn anything. Prayer is the time when you take all that that you know, and you take it to heart. And you awaken yourself. They become real for you. You connect with them. It evokes some personal response. Prayer is a time of inspiration. Something stirs inside of you. Something moves inside of you. Something changes. You're inspired, you're moved, it touches you. And the godly spark inside of you, you become conscious of it. It becomes a vibrant force in your life. So that takes effort. That doesn't come from just mouthing the words externally and superficially. That takes effort. That takes concentration, it takes focus, it takes meditation, it takes praying wholeheartedly. And again, this is tremendous effort to pray properly until something really, until you feel that you're moved inside, until something moves inside of you, until you're genuinely inspired. 
not imaginary inspiration or superficial inspiration, but to be genuinely moved and inspired takes tremendous effort. It doesn't happen in a moment. You know, there's no, there's no fast, uh, there's no instant. You know, nothing genuine in life is instant. Even instant coffee is not instant. It takes, takes a lot of effort to get that instant coffee. Everything in life, everything that's real in life, takes time. There's no shortcuts. To become inspired in prayer, there's no shortcuts. If everything is rushed, just like when you eat a meal, right? If you rush through the meal, to eat a meal properly, yeah, the food has to, you have to allow the food to digest. And that takes time. You can't rush. I'm in a rush. You're in a rush. If you don't eat properly, then the, f- the food won't, won't be wholesome and beneficial. You have to... There's no rush. You have to allow the food to digest. So even though we live in a very rushed time, but certain things can't be rushed. Prayer is a time to stop, slow down. Block out the world out there. That's why you cover your eyes when you say the Shema Yisrael. You block out the world. It's not a time to rush. It's a time to be quiet. It's a time to focus. It's a time to concentrate. It's a time to connect, to get in touch with your neshama, with the godly spark inside you. It's a time to block out all distractions. It's a time to go inward, to go deep inside, to awaken that spark, and to get in touch with that spark and to feel it, and to touch it, and be touched by it. And there are no shortcuts. It takes time, and it takes effort. You have to learn before, then you have to think and meditate and, uh, meditate and reflect, concentrate, focus on what you're saying, which in turn evokes a certain response, which inspires you to change and to grow forward and it's that inspiration that taste of ins- that inspiration that carries you throughout the rest of the day but you have to be inspired as we learned earlier in earlier chapters you have to be inspired you can't go through life not being inspired that tzaddik is naturally inspired he's inspired 24-7 that's the definition of a tzaddik the benini is someone who has the ability to inspire himself during prayer. So it's a temporary inspiration, but but that inspiration carries you throughout the rest of the day. That inspiration, there has to be at least a moment, at least a few moments when you're free from the conflict, the inner conflict, the inner turmoil and tension. Otherwise you wouldn't have the strength to carry on. at least during prayer, when you're, when you're genuinely inspired, during those moments, you're free from the conflict. You sedate your ego, your animal soul, you anesthetize it, and it's put asleep, and it doesn't bother you, at least for the hour or two that you pray. So prayer is a very precious time, it's a very special time. But in order to fully, to fully benefit from prayer, and to fully take out what prayer is all about, that takes effort. It's an opportunity, but it takes effort. It's like a marriage. Everyone is married, but some people take 1% out of marriage. Some people take 10%, and some people take 100%. The opportunity is there. Prayer is an opportune moment. 
The heavens are open. Your soul is open. It's an opportune moment. But what do you take out of that moment? That's up to you. No deposit, no return. Depends what effort you put in. If you put in an effort, a genuine effort, and you pour your heart and soul into the prayer, and your mind, and your focus, and you concentrate, and you're present, then the prayer comes alive for you. The prayer becomes meaningful. Inspiration. So it's effort. So again, that's the difference if you're asleep or you're awake. Most people sleepwalk through life. So most religious people sleepwalk through prayer. It's perfunctory. It's technical. It's mechanical. It's soulless. It's dry. In a legal court of law, you haven't done anything wrong. You prayed. You fulfilled your obligation. But that's the problem. It's an obligation. It's not something that's soulful. To truly be soulful, not just read the words, but mean what you say. Not just say the words, but every word that you say, you should mean it. When you say, Shema Yisrael, Hashem, Elokeinu, Hashem, Echad, you should mean it. And you should experience it and feel it. The absolute unity of Hashem. And then when you say, love Hashem with all your heart, with both of your hearts, you should mean it. You should experience it. To mean what you say. That takes effort. That doesn't come with a snap of a finger. That's not superficial. That's not external. That's real. That takes tremendous effort. So again, a person who's awake, who's awake to the intimacy, this relationship that we have with Hashem, this hidden love that we have with Hashem, the godly spark located at the center of our being, if you're awake to that reality, then prayer becomes a moment when you can express that intimacy, when you can experience that intimacy, when you can feel that intimacy. And it engages every fiber of your being and every bone in your body. So the prayer is, is intense. The prayer is deep. The prayer is profound. It's genuine. So that takes effort. Continue. So too, with regard to serving God in monetary matters, such as the duty of charity, and in similar matters that entail great effort, where one must struggle with the evil inclination and its wiles, which seek to cool the ardor of a man's soul, claiming that he ought not dissipate his money in the case of charity or his health in matters requiring physical exertion. For example, tzedakah. When it comes to tzedakah, a person rationalizes. Why should I give so much? It's enough if I give the bare minimum, 10%. And you'll rationalize Instead of giving tzedakah, instead of pushing yourself, pushing yourself to go beyond your limit, beyond your, lim- beyond your nature, and to give not only the required 10%, or not only the recommended 20%, but to even push yourself to go beyond. As the, the Rebbe explains elsewhere, that... There's nothing a person won't do for a cure, to heal himself. A person will bankrupt himself, a person will undergo painful procedures. There's nothing in the world a person won't do to, to cure himself, physically. So once a person realizes that giving tzedakah is the cure for the soul, is the cure-all for any spiritual malady, any spiritual illness or dysfunction, tzedakah is the ultimate cure for this. And there's no limit to the amount of tzedakah you would give. You push yourself. All these limitations fall by the wayside. 
because something 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 touches you very deeply. If something affects you, like your health, your life is at stake. When your life is at stake, your life is threatened. And there's nothing you won't do to, to regain your health. So once you feel that your spiritual life is threatened, when there are so many challenges to our spiritual health and well-being, especially in the day and age that we live in today, with all the spiritual darkness, and when the soul feels threatened, and realizes that we have the, the antidote, we have the cure, we have the medicine, tzedakah, the ultimate medicine. So then there's no limit. So when, when you give tzedakah and you give it with a sense of urgency, with a sense that this is the spiritual cure for all spiritual maladies, and this will protect my soul from spiritual death and from all the plagues of the darkness that we live in today, then you give the tzedakah with umf. You give it with energy. You push yourself. You give more than your nature. Beyond any limitation. You give and you continue to give. And you give even more. So again, if a person is asleep, then you just do what you have to. You do the bare minimum. Like paying income taxes. You You do the bare minimum. You find every loophole under the book. And that's fine. In the court of law, no one can have any arguments against you. But if you're awake, and you're giving tzedakah because this is your way of expressing your relationship with Hashem. Just like Hashem gives tzedakah. Everything we have is a tzedakah. Existence, life, it's a gratuitous gift from Hashem. It doesn't owe us a thing. And we in turn have to become godly and godlike. We also have to become giving. Then instead of giving 10% or 20%, maybe you keep 10% and you give, you give everything you have to tzedakah. Those who are in a position to. But even those who aren't, Alter Rebbe pushed this Hasidim very much to go beyond any limitation to give and give and continue to give and to give even more. As Alter Rebbe said elsewhere, that when do we say that your life comes first? That's only true if it's a question of your life versus your friend's life. For example, you have one piece of bread, you're both traveling in the desert. Only one of you is going to survive because you only have one piece of bread. It's only enough to sustain one person. So who goes first? Rabbi Kiva says, your life comes first, my life comes first. You get to eat a piece of bread and your friend gets to die. Your life comes first. You're not obligated to die and to give a piece of bread to your friend. Now the Rabbi says, yes, that's true. Because we're talking about a very extreme case. Your, your survival, your friend's survival. In that case, your survival comes first. But what if it's a question of my luxuries and my friend's survival? You're not going to say, well, my life comes first. So I have to live in luxury. I have to live in luxus. I have to have five homes. And I have to have, have, to have a dozen cars. And then my friend can die, but my, my life comes first. In such a case, we don't say my life comes first. It's a question of you, my life, and my friend's life, my life comes first. It's a question of my luxus and my luxuries versus my friend's basic needs. Then my friend's needs comes first. So after every push the Hasidim to give much more than is required by Jewish law. And some would say, are you even allowed to give more, more than a fifth, more than 20%? But the Rebbe and the Baal Shem Tev said, no, a person is allowed to give and is allowed to give without any limitation. Because if you feel that this is the medicine of your soul, and especially if you enjoy giving, the Baal Shem Tev said, it says, 
The Talmud uses an expression, which literally means like spoil, spoils of war. Why would the Talmud use, the Talmud could have used a simpler expression. Hamachalik, whoever apportions, gives a portion of your money to tzedakah, should give, shouldn't give more than 20%. Why does the Talmud use such a unique expression? The Baal says, the Talmud is talking about someone who has to wage war to give tzedakah. By him it's like war, because why am I giving away my money, my hard-earned money to, to, to another person, to a stranger? Something for nothing. Why should I do it? But if a person enjoys giving tzedakah, so think about it. Oh, I'm allowed to spend 80% of my money I'm allowed to spend for myself. I can go to Disney World. I can have a good time. I can, I can take a vacation around the world, trip around. Well, that's okay. But God forbid I'm not allowed to spend it on giving tzedakah. If I enjoy giving tzedakah, then, it's not, then I don't feel it's a burden or obligation. This is my pleasure. I can do with my money whatever I like. If this is your pleasure, if you are godly, if you are in touch with godliness, and you realize that Hashem is constantly the divine flow. Hashem is constantly giving us everything that we have, existence, health, success. So we in turn also have to become godly and godlike and also become givers and share whatever we have. So in such a case, there, is, there, are, there are no limitations. You can give and give and continue to give and give even more. So when a person is awake, when you're in touch with the divine spark inside of you, and you realize this relationship that we have with Hashem, this intimate relation we have with Hashem, then you push yourself to the limit and beyond your limit. So then you give tzedakah also in, a, in, 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 in an awake state. You give and you push yourself. And you give with oomph and with strength. And of course you give with feeling and with empathy, with sensitivity. And then, not only tzedakah, but any, anything that, that requires us battling our ego nature, which tends to cool us down, relax, be detached, don't take it to heart, don't take it personally. Think about yourself. But the more in touch you are, the godly spark inside with this relationship the more you rise above your ego and you push yourself and you don't think so much about yourself and uh, you overcome anything that can cool you down or cool you off and instead you do the mitzvah and you do it with warmth with passion with love with joy with excitement It is very easy. It is very easy for a person to resist and subjugate his nature when he considers deeply that to conquer his nature in all the above and more, and in fact, to do the very opposite, i.e. to exert himself strenuously both bodily and financially, is much lighter suffering than death. May God preserve us. Yet he would lovingly and willingly have accepted the pain of death. God preserve us so as not to be separated from God's unity and oneness, even for a moment, by an act of idolatry, God forbid. For as mentioned earlier, every Jew would sacrifice his life rather than practice idolatry, since he knows that it represents separation from God. Certainly, then, he ought to accept lovingly and willingly the comparatively minor pain of exerting himself in the performance of the mitzvot 
in order to bind himself to God with an eternal bond. There is a twofold a fortiori argument here. Firstly, performing a mitzvah actively binds man to God, as opposed to refraining from idolatry, which merely prevents separation from him. Secondly, the bond affected by the mitzvah is an eternal one, as opposed to the temporary separation from God caused by idolatry. Now, if one would sacrifice his life to refrain from idolatry, how much more so ought he accept whatever hardships are entailed by fulfilling the mitzvot, since their performance has both these gains that are not found in the rejection of idolatry? This is one of the methods how you study Torah, by way of Kalvachemer. That if it's true in this case, how much more so it's true in the other case? If it's true in the case that of idolatry, a Jew would rather die, make the ultimate sacrifice, rather than disconnect from Hashem. So how much more so that a Jew would rather sacrifice himself, push himself beyond his limit, exert himself, and push himself to do a mitzvah, and to do the mitzvah in the best way possible. Why is that? How much more so? Why is it clearer in the case of positive, and being proactive and actively doing a mitzvah than in the case of avoiding a negative prohibition? Because in the case of negative prohibition, it's just a matter of not disrupting something that exists, a relationship that exists. So don't disconnect yourself. Don't sever that relationship. Don't cut yourself off. Don't be unfaithful. But in the case of a mitzvah, you're actually doing something positive. You're not just avoiding doing, doing something negative. You're not just avoiding the sin of omission by not doing a mitzvah. By actively doing a mitzvah, you're actually doing something positive. You're strengthening the relationship. You're adding something to the relationship. Because although every one of us is born with this innate and inherent relationship, but every time you do a mitzvah, you strengthen that relationship. You're adding to the relationship. So how much more so you'll do something that can add to the relationship. If the relationship means so much that you will avoid anything that can harm or diminish this relationship, how much more so you do anything in your power you can to strengthen the relationship, to make it even deeper, even stronger. And, especially since, when you do a mitzvah, the relationship is an eternal relationship. Because any, any mitzvah that you do has eternal implications and has an eternal effect, as he's going to explain. Okay, continue. The Alter Rebbe now goes on to explain how mitzvot affect an eternal bond with God. For by fulfilling God's will through this service, despite the exertion involved, the innermost divine will will be revealed in it, internally as opposed to surrounding it or hovering over it from above, and very manifestly without any obscurity whatever. As explained in chapter 23, the mitzvot represent God's innermost will, and when one performs them, this will stands completely revealed. Now, when there is no, quote, concealment of the countenance, end quote, of the divine will, nothing is at all separate from godliness, having an independent and separate identity of its own. For as explained in chapters 22 and 24, no created being can possibly consider itself separate from God unless the divine will is concealed from it. Since the inner aspect of this will stands revealed in one's performance of a mitzvah, 
it does not permit any sense of separation. So the truth is that everything is unified within the absolute unity of Hashem. The truth is there is nothing separate from God. But God created the world through the symptom, and God is concealed and hidden. And therefore we don't sense that connection. And since we don't sense that connection, that sense of ego, that sense of separation, this is what separates us and divides us from Hashem. But when you do a mitzvah, and you become the tool, the implement, through which God's will is fulfilled, God desired that we do a mitzvah, and then you take your hand and you do the mitzvah. You take the object and you do the mitzvah. So not only do you become the tool and the implement through which we fulfill God's will, so we become like the tool in the hands, hands of the builder, but even more so, we become like the organ of the body. That become completely like the organ in the body, becomes completely connected to the soul, becomes unified with the soul. So at that moment, when we become the implementation, the tool and the implementation of God's innermost will and desire, which is the mitzvah, which is the whole purpose of creation, at that moment, there, there is no, there's no hiding, there's no concealment. At that moment, we become a, not only a vessel, a vehicle for God, we become connected with God, unified with God. We become like the relationship of the body to the soul, the organ to the soul. We become completely unified, unified with God. So at that moment, there's no, there's no disconnection. And we become part of God's absolute unity. Continue thus. Thus his soul, i.e. the soul of the person performing the mitzvah, both the divine and the animating souls and their garments of thought, speech, and action will be united in perfect unity with the divine will and with the infinite light of God, blessed be he, as explained above. This details how the mitzvot affect the bond between man and God. The Alter Rebbe will now go on to explain why this bond is eternal. In the upper spheres, this union between the soul and God is eternal, for God, blessed be he, and his will transcend time, and thus the union with God and his will also transcends time and is eternal. So since at that moment, your hand, you become unified, becomes unified with the will of Hashem, a tool, an implementation, an organ, the power of your soul, the power to move becomes, and the object with which you do the mitzvah becomes the organ to God's will. That unity is eternal, because God is eternal. It transcends time and space. So that unity is also eternal. In other words, if you do one mitzvah, let's say you do one mitzvah in your life, the only mitzvah, you'll never be the same again. You'll change forever. There's no going back. Yes, the Talmud says that a sin could extinguish a mitzvah. It could only extinguish the effect of the mitzvah, but not the mitzvah itself. That union, that connection is eternal. I tell a story, the first Gerer Rebbe was once riding with this heretic. And the heretic says, I don't understand. It says in the Torah, it says in the Shema, we read twice a day, it says in the Shema, that is, God says, if you will follow the Torah mitzvah, you will be rewarded. If you don't follow the Torah mitzvah, you'll, you'll be punished. He says, Rebbe, 
I don't follow the Torah limits. And look, God rewarded me. I'm so wealthy. I'm so successful. I have it good. Life is good. So the Rebbe answered him. From your question, it's obvious that you're familiar with the Shema. That at least once in your life you read the Shema. Well, there's no reward in the world, in this physical world, that's adequate enough to reward you for that once reading of the Shema, for that doing that mitzvah one single time. Because when you do a mitzvah one single time, the effect is eternal. You've done a mitzvah, you've connected with Hashem. Hashem transcends time and space. So if you have become unified with Hashem, you've become a tool, an implementation, an organ, God's body, so to speak, which is completely unified with his soul, with Hashem, that unity is eternal. And the effects are eternal. Talmud says there's no reward in this world because this world isn't adequate to give reward for the mitzvah, even a single mitzvah. The mitzvah is eternal. And that's why if you stop a Jew in Times Square and they put on tefillin for the first time in their life, the mitzvah mobile, they put, they put on tefillin for the first time in their life. Or she takes a candle and she lights a Shabbos candle the first time in her life. You can't imagine the effect and the impact of that one single mitzvah. That person will be changed forever. Where that person has, has a link, a connection to the divine, Tasha. And it's an infinite connection. And it's an eternal connection. And therefore, one mitzvah, as the rabbis say in Ethics of Our Fathers, mitzvah gereris mitzvah. It's a fact that one mitzvah will lead to another mitzvah. Many times, the whole road back to Yiddishkeit started with one single mitzvah. One mitzvah. Maybe it lay dormant, maybe it took time, but it planted a seed. And it touched your soul in the deepest place. It's like, a, it's like a, a nuclear reaction, atomic energy, something ignited inside of you in the deepest level. When you do one single mitzvah, something ignites inside of you. It can never be the same. Whether you see the effect immediately or not, it's a reality. The mitzvah is eternal. Continue, so too. So too, even in this world, his revealed will, as expressed in his word, the Torah is also eternal, as it is written, but the word of our God shall stand forever, and his words live and endure eternally, and he will never alter or exchange his law. Since the revelation of God's will as expressed in the Torah is beyond time, the union of the soul with God that Torah and mitzvot effect is likewise eternal. When you study Torah, you're also studying the word of Hashem, the will of Hashem, which is eternal, which is forever. The Torah reveals Hashem's will, His will, His revealed will. And therefore, when your mind studies the mind of Hashem, the revealed will of Hashem, that union is also forever. Okay, continue here below. Here below, however, this union is within the limits of time. For in this world, the soul is under the dominion of time. And the soul is united with God only while it is engaged in the Torah study or in the performance of a mitzvah. It's an interesting uh, concept brought down. The 
code of Jewish law, question is, take Shabbat, for example. Shabbos, Friday night, Saturday, Shabbos, is a holiness. Time becomes sacred, sacred time. If you do work on Shabbos, you've violated one of the most sacred mitzvot. The time itself is sacred for those 24 hours. The question is the different time zones. While it's sacred here, in another part of the world, where it's a few hours earlier, or when Shabbos ends a few hours later, it's, it's a regular day. So how is it possible that Shabbos should be, in one part of the world, is, is it's sacred, and then another part of the world It's, it's not Shabbos. The answer is the sanctity of Shabbos is spiritual. It transcends time and space. It's eternal. But the question is, when is it Shabbos for us? So it's only in our time zone, in your time zone, at nightfall, Friday night, at, at nightfall, at sunset, that's when it becomes sacred. Wherever you are in the world, then it becomes sacred for the next 24 hours. So that revelation, that eternal spiritual sacredness that transcends time and space connects with time and then within the framework of time and space, that time, the time of your specific time zone becomes an expression of that sanctity. And that time becomes sanctified. So too, He's saying here that the sanctity of the soul, the sanctity of the soul that has done the mitzvah is eternal. It's an eternal bond, it's an eternal connection, eternal holiness. But when is that sanctity revealed? Only at the moment that you're doing the mitzvah. When you stop doing the mitzvah, you're no longer connected. The moment you're doing a mitzvah, you're connected. And you've achieved an eternal connection. But the eternal connection is from God's point of view, it's an eternal connection. But from a human point of view, the next moment when you're occupied and engaged in mundane and secular things, you're no longer occupied in something holy, you're not engaged in doing a mitzvah. Any time you do a mitzvah, any moment you're engaged in doing a mitzvah, then you are, you are connected with that holiness. But the moment you stop being engaged in doing a mitzvah, and studying Torah, doing a mitzvah, that moment, you're not connected with holiness. So yes, the connection that you've accomplished and achieved through that moment when you study Torah, through that mitzvah that you've done, that connection is an eternal connection. But it's an eternal connection because God is eternal. And you've touched the divine, and been touched by the divine. And that, it's a divine touch, that's an eternal touch. But from your point of view, from our point of view, from a very limited time and space point of view, the next moment I'm not engaged in anything holy. So at that moment I'm not connected. So the connection ends when I stop learning Torah, when I stop doing a mitzvah. Okay, continue. For if he engages. For if he engages afterwards in anything else, he becomes separated. Here below, from this supernal union, that is, if he occupies himself with the absolutely necessary matters that are in no way useful in the service of God. And he's not doing anything wrong. He's not doing anything immoral, anything unethical, anything that's prohibited. 
He's not engaged in any, in any falsehood. But he's also not engaged in anything for the sake of heaven. If he's engaged in business for the sake of heaven, then that's all part of his, part of his service of Hashem. But if he's just neutrally just engaged, disengaged from mitzvot or from Torah, and he's just going about his life, not doing anything wrong, he's not doing anything, anything, uh, any mitzvah. So at that moment, he becomes disconnected. To continue, nevertheless. Nevertheless, when he repents and resumes his service of God through Torah study or prayer, and he asks forgiveness of God for not having studied Torah at the time of his occupation in vain matters, when he could have done so, God forgives him. As our sages have said, quote, if one neglected to perform a positive precept and repented, he is pardoned forthwith, end quote, and is thus reunited even here below with God and his will. For this reason, i.e. because such a request for forgiveness is immediately effective in reuniting the soul to God so that it will not be parted from him even momentarily, the sages ordain that the blessing beginning Quote, forgive us, end quote, in which we beg forgiveness for the sin of neglecting the study of the Torah be recited as often as three times daily, since no one escapes this sin even a single day. So since a Jew wants to be constantly connected with God 24-7, and since it's very difficult, especially to study Torah constantly, to use every waking moment, Every opportunity we have to study Torah is one of the most difficult things. And when we don't study Torah, when we have the opportunity to study, we neglect to study Torah. At that moment, we become disconnected. So since a Jew wants to be constantly connected with God, especially a Jew who's awake, who's awake to this intimate relationship with God, this deep connection to God, and is in touch with that connection, and it reveals that connection, especially during prayer. Therefore, it bothers you, knowing that there are moments that I, I was disconnected. Yes, every moment that I study Torah is an eternal moment. Every mitzvah that I have done is an eternal moment. No one could ever take that away from me. I can't even take it away from myself. But there were moments when there was a blank. I wasn't doing anything to connect. I wasn't... I was disengaged. And it bothers you. And therefore, you, the rabbis instituted a prayer. We ask Hashem to forgive us. And Hashem is kind. Hashem loves to forgive. And since He's eternal, He forgives us eternally. Even though we ask in the morning for forgiveness, and we ask again in the afternoon, a human being, after he asks three times forgiveness, you know, if you do the same, if you make the same mistake over again, that's it. You ask three times, You've reached my limit. No more forgiveness. Hashem, we ask thousands of times, and the thousandth time is like the first time, because God is infinite. Hashem loves to forgive us, as long as we're sincere, as long as it's heartfelt. So, and it is heartfelt, because we always want to be connected with God. We want the connection to be 24-7. Just like intimacy engages our entire being, the totality of our being, so too we want to be constantly connected with God, 24-7. Not just eternally on, on the eternal level. We also want to be connected in, in, our, in our framework, in our ref, time reference, in our time and space reality. We always want to be connected with God, each and every moment. 
But since we know inevitably we're human, and it's so difficult to constantly utilize every waking moment, every opportunity we have to study Torah. So there are inevitably there will be moments when we could have studied, and we should have, and we could have, and we didn't. So there was an interruption of this connection, of this intimacy, of this unity. Therefore we pray to Hashem, please Hashem forgive us. Forgive us for the sin. Just like the daily sacrifice was offered on a daily basis in the temple. Every single day of the year. To forgive, to help atone for the daily sins. For example, the sin of not studying Torah. The sin of omission. When you had the opportunity to study Torah, and you didn't study Torah, which is almost inevitably going to happen each and every day. Because being who we are, and being human, so therefore, but it, it bothers the Jew, and therefore we have the sacrifice to help us atone for the sin. And today, instead of sacrifices, we have the prayer. The prayer is a, is a replacement for the sacrifice. We pray to Hashem, Hashem, please forgive us. Forgive us for the sin of omission. Forgive us for the sin of not studying Torah, for not utilizing each and every waking moment to be constantly and continuously connected with you. And Hashem forgives us. We don't say a prayer in vain. If we ask for forgiveness, it's only because Hashem will forgive us. All we have to do is ask forgiveness and mean it. And Hashem forgives us instantly. That's why we don't dwell in it. We, 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 we ask forgiveness and we're confident, we trust that Hashem has forgiven us and after prayer we can go move on and continue to serve Hashem with joy, with a glad heart, with a joyous heart, knowing that Hashem has forgiven us and Hashem made up for it. And He, he, has, he has forgiven us for this a sin of omission. But the question is, now He's going to address the question, isn't it like the concept we encountered earlier in the chapter? That if someone says, I will sin, and then I will repent. In such a case, he will, this Jew will not be given the opportunity to repent. Why? Because it's the sin that, it's the, it's the repentance that caused him to sin. It's because he was so confident that he has the, the way out, he can repent. That's why he went ahead and sinned. So if it's the repentance that's the source of the sin and the cause of the sin, because he was so relaxed, he said, yeah, I'll, I'll repent, I'll sin today, enjoy myself now, and then I'll, I'll uh, repent later. If a Jew is so relaxed, that he relies on the repentance, and that's the motivation for him to sin, then he won't be given the opportunity to repent. So here it sounds like the same thing. A person is asking Hashem forgiveness, knowing that tomorrow he's going to sin again. But no big deal, Hashem will forgive him again. <laughs> Three times a day we'll ask Hashem, Hashem for forgiveness. So isn't it relying on that, on that uh, teshuva, on that asking for forgiveness? It's like, imagine you'll, uh, you know, you, you've, you'll mistreat your spouse, but I'll ask you forgiveness. You know, if you're relying on that, then you're going to, if this becomes a daily habit, <laughs> well, I'll do the wrong thing, but eventually I'll ask for forgiveness and then, and then we'll make up for it. Isn't it the same idea? That I'm relying on the repentance, I'm relying on the begging of, and the forgiveness and the obtaining the forgiveness in order to sin? Salter Rebbe is going to say, no, that there's no comparison. And the reason why there's no comparison is because there's an obvious distinction. And the obvious distinction is because in that case you're actually relying on the, 
under, re under repentance. It's the repentance that's causing you to sin. If you knew you had a way out, if you didn't know, if you didn't know that you had a way out, you would never have sinned. Here, I'm not relying on the repentance. It's just a fact of life. I know, because I'm human, it's almost impossible to, to utilize every single moment to study Torah. I know, because I'm human, inevitably, there are going to be moments that I won't study Torah, when I should have studied Torah, I could have studied Torah. Isn't it also because we really don't have that much control over what goes on in our minds? I mean, we, we, no matter how much we try and concentrate on, on certain things, sometimes the mind just goes off on its own. Well, that you're not responsible for. That you don't have to ask forgiveness for. Things that are out of your control, you don't have to ask forgiveness for. We're talking about things that are in your control. You had the time, but, you know... <laughs> you made a choice. You made a choice. But again, it's not a choice that you do willingly. It's just, it's almost inevitable because it's so difficult. It's such a rare thing. Rabbah was such a unique case that he never, ever wasted a single moment, you know, from, from studying a Torah. That's something that, that's unusual. So, so it's not like you're relying, you know, you're relaxed. You're saying, you know... I know Hashem is going to forgive me. I know I'm going to do tshuva in the afternoon or in the evening service. So I'll go ahead and listen. That's not, that's not what's happening here. If you had a choice, you, you wouldn't sin at all. You always want to be connected with Hashem. You always want to be intimate with Hashem. 24-7. Not just passively, not to uh, violate the sin of commission, but even, even, even actively. You want to do whatever you can to be connected with Hashem. And do it in, in, in an awakened state. To do it with, with, with zeal and zest and to be alive and vibrant. Study Torah with every ounce of energy that you have. Pray with every ounce of energy that you have. Push yourself to do a mitzvah with every ounce of energy that you have. Give tzedakah with every cent that you have. But you know inevitably that it's impossible to be perfect. So inevitably there are going to be moments, there are going to be gaps. And therefore you're asking Hashem for forgiveness. Knowing that is, you know, there probably were gaps and therefore I wasn't connected with Hashem 24-7. But I'm not relying on it. I'm not, I'm not relaxed about it and I'm not relying on it. And I'm not, if it was up to me, it would never happen. But I just know that inevitably being that I, oh, I am who I am and I'm human, so inevitably it's going to happen. And therefore, I'm constantly asking Hashem for forgiveness. That's what he's going to explain here. This blessing is like the daily burnt offering sacrificed in the holy temple that atoned for neglect of the positive precepts. Yet, it may be argued, since this sin is repeated constantly, begging forgiveness for it is similar to saying, quote, I will sin and repent, sin and repent, end quote. Our sages have said that in such a case, God does not grant the sinner the opportunity to repent. Why then should the request beginning, quote, forgive us, end quote, be effective in the case of neglecting Torah study? The Alter Rebbe now differentiates between the two cases. This is not the same as saying, quote, I will sin and repent, sin and repent, end quote, unless at the very time when one commits the sin, he relies on subsequent repentance and sins because of it, as explained elsewhere. Since he perverted the idea of repentance by using it as an excuse for sinning, he is not given the opportunity to practice it. However, in our case of the oft-repeated sin of neglecting to study Torah, the offender does not rely on teshuva at the time of his sin, 
and he is therefore granted the opportunity to ask for forgiveness thrice daily in the blessing of, quote, forgive us, end quote. So the conclusion is, what do we see from this? That if a person considers and thinks about that if you're ready to give up your life rather than be disconnected from God, even for a split second, even superficially, externally, how much more so you'll do anything in your power to be connected for God eternally. How are you connected to God eternally? Every time you do a mitzvah, even if it's one single mitzvah, if you're studying Torah for one moment, if you're giving a penny to tzedakah, if you're doing a mitzvah, when you're praying to Hashem, you're connecting with Hashem. And that connection is an eternal connection. So if you'll do anything in your power, not to be disconnected from God for a split second, how much more so? When you have the opportunity, each and every moment is an eternal moment. You have the opportunity to connect with God each and every moment. Instead of living life for the moment, which is what society pushes. Just live for the moment. Life of constant distraction. 24-7 entertainment. Constant distraction from reality. The Torah teaches us to be awake every moment. To live in the moment. That every moment is an eternal moment. Every moment gives us the opportunity to connect with eternity. To connect with us. Every moment that you study Torah, every moment you do a mitzvah, you're present, you're awake, you're connected in the here and now. But this moment becomes connected to all previous moments and to all future moments. And becomes connected with every space. And becomes connected to every soul that has lived and is alive and will ever live. You plug into eternity. Every moment becomes an opportunity. When you take a cup of water, you're not just drinking because you have a natural urge to drink, because you have a natural biological need to drink. When you stop and you make a blessing and you think about what you're saying and you drink the cup of water, this moment has become an eternal moment. You've plugged into eternity. You've connected to eternity. You've connected it with Hashem. When you're connected with Hashem, when you do a mitzvah, you're connected with Hashem, that moment becomes an eternal moment. So every moment in life becomes an opportunity to connect with eternity. Forever and ever. So if you would give up your life rather than be disconnected from God for a split second, how much more so you'll give your life. You'll throw your heart and soul. You'll give it with every fiber of your being, every bone in our body. You'll do anything that you can. You'll do the mitzvah. You'll pray. You'll study the Torah. You push yourself to give that extra penny to tzedakah, to do that extra favor, to do that mitzvah, and to do it beautifully and wholeheartedly. This is the definition of someone who's awake, who has revealed his inner truth, the divine spark. It's located at the center of his being, who's in touch with that spark, who's awake, who's awakened to the intimate relationship that we have with Hashem. And then that permeates every aspect of your being, every moment of your life. This is an awakened Jew. This is what he calls the Benani. This is the challenge for each and every one of us. This is not reserved for the tzaddik, for the inspired one, who's inspired 24-7. But this is relevant to each and every one of us, from the greatest to the smallest. 
because it's dormant, it's there, the spark is there, the relationship is there, the intimate relationship is there. All you have to do is reveal it. Awaken yourself to it. And once you awaken yourself to it, you'll never be the same. You'll become a, a, a realized, a fully realized human being, a fully realized Jew, who's connected with Hashem. This is the path and the program of the Torah. This is what the Torah is. The Torah is a program that enables us to connect with Hashem 24-7. At all times and all places. Every one of us. So now, he says, with all, after all of this, now we can understand. At any rate, we see that the union of the soul with God that is affected through the mitzvot is eternal. When one considers that he would gladly give up his life so as not to be even momentarily parted from God by practicing idolatry, he will realize that he surely ought to exert himself in performing the mitzvot which bind him to God forever. The Alter Rebbe has thus demonstrated how being aware of one's willingness to sacrifice his life for God affects both the areas of, quote, turning away from evil, end quote, and, quote, doing good, end quote i.e. the observance of the negative and positive commandments respectively. It follows that this awareness should constantly be on one's mind, so that he will always be ready to apply it to his performance of the mitzvot. In light of the above, it will be understood why Moshe Rabbeinu, peace be upon him, commanded in the book of Devarim, not in the earlier books of the Bible addressed to the generation of Jews who wandered in the desert, but to the generation that entered the Holy Land, that they too, and not only the subsequent generations, recite the Shema twice daily. The intention in the Shema being to acknowledge the kingdom of heaven with self-sacrifice, i.e. the Shema teaches us to accept martyrdom for the sanctification of God's name. Now, one may ask, why was it necessary for our forefathers to prepare themselves for martyrdom? Had they not been promised that God will lay the fear and dread of you upon all the inhabitants of the land? They had no reason to fear that anyone would attempt to force them to deny the kingdom of heaven, necessitating self-sacrifice to resist such efforts. In this sense, they were as well protected as the Jews who traveled the desert with Moses, who were not commanded to recite the Shema. A Jew must affirm his faith twice a day, must affirm his faith. He would rather die, rather give up his life, than uh, deny the belief in the one God, uh, rather than bow down to the idol, worship the idol. Now, the first time we find the Shema written in the Torah is in Deuteronomy, when Moshe is speaking at the end of his life. The question is, was the Shema given earlier? Or was that the first time the Jewish people heard the Shema? It's not simple. Because if you remember the story of Korach, when Korach rebelled against Moshe, one of the things he used to ridicule the Moshe, he asked whether a home that's full of holy books also needs a mezuzah. Full of holy scrolls also needs a mezuzah. The point he's trying to make is, that when everyone in the community is holy, why do you need a holy person, a leader? If everyone in the community is holy, so why do you need a leader like Moshe and Aaron? His point was, surely 
a home that's fulfilled with Torah books, with holy scrolls, doesn't need a mezuzah. The whole home is holy. And the answer is, of course, he was wrong. Even a home that's filled with Torah scrolls also needs a mezuzah. So although Judaism is truly and genuinely egalitarian, everyone is equal, everyone is equally connected with God, but nevertheless, there is a Moshe, who's, who's, the most, who's more spiritually intense, and he is the leader of the Jewish people. So we see from this, where is the mitzvah of mezuzah written? In the Shema. Korach, the story of Korach happened the second year they were in the desert. So according to this Midrash, they obviously had the mitzvah of Shema even at the beginning of their journey. Not only at the end of the journey, the end of the 40 years. But nevertheless, in the Torah, it's written in the book of Deuteronomy. The question is, why is, is it written in the Torah without getting into the question whether it was given before or not given before? But even if it was given before, it was only written in the Torah in the book of Deuteronomy, which is Moshe speaking to the next generation. The uh, previous generation all died out already. This is the end of Moshe's life. They're about to enter into the land of Israel. Moshe is about to pass away. So he's commanding them, and he's writing down for them the mitzvah of the Shema. And why is the mitzvah Shema? A Jew has to be ready to martyr himself, to sacrifice his life, to reaffirm and to commit himself to his belief in the ultimate belief, in the principal Jewish belief, which is the belief in the absolute unity of God, that a Jew is ready, ready to give up his life, sacrifice his life, rather than bow down to the idol and worship the idol. Well, the generation that left, that entered the land of Israel, Moshe promised that your fear will be in all the inhabitants, you will be successful. So this is not something that was immediately relevant for them. Just like the Jews in the desert, it wasn't relevant for them because they were surrounded by the clouds, they were protected. There was no fear of any enemy, there was no fear of oppression, there, was no, there, was, there wasn't a choice they had to make. They weren't faced with that choice. Bow down to the idol, don't, don't bow down to the idol. So too, the generation that entered Israel also didn't face this choice. They were successful, they conquered their enemies. So they didn't have to face that choice to deny their Jewishness or, or bow down to the idol. So why was, it imperative? why was it important for them? Why is, is, did they have the mitzvah? Were they given the mitzvah to start saying the Shema twice a day? To constantly reaffirm your commitment, and reaffirm your faith, and reaffirm your readiness to martyr yourself. So the Alter Rebbe will now explain, and the reason is... We must therefore conclude that preparation for martyrdom is necessary not only to ensure that it will be put into practice if and when necessary, but because the fulfillment of the Torah and its commandments is contingent on one's being constantly aware of his readiness to surrender his life to God for the sake of his unity, i.e. that a person remember that he would be willing to sacrifice his life for the sake of God's unity if the situation would warrant it, which is the message contained in the Shema. He must therefore recite it twice daily, morning and evening, so that his awareness will be fixed permanently in his heart and will not depart from his memory night and day. In this way one is able to withstand his evil inclination and to vanquish it at every time and every moment, even after Moses' passing, whenever Jews are engaged in an intense struggle with the evil inclination, as it is written, quote, God said to Moses, Behold, you are about to sleep with your fathers, and this people will rise up and stray. End quote. 
as explained above, that when one remembers that he would be prepared to suffer martyrdom for his love of God and his belief in God's unity, he will surely be able to overcome his evil inclination and perform all the mitzvot. You know, a person has hidden strengths that we don't ordinarily realize under ordinary circumstances. We know when people face danger, suddenly they get an adrenaline rush and they're able to accomplish super human feats. They're able to act heroically. Like the mother who's able to lift the car off her child. And, you know, in the normal circumstances, it's just impossible. She doesn't have the strength. And even uh, people much stronger than her couldn't do it. And yet, at that moment when a child is in danger, she discovers this super stre- superhuman strength inside of herself, and she lifts the car off. Or when people were stuck, there was a fire, and they squeezed themselves through a bar to get out of the building, and then they couldn't get back in. It's, it's, there's no way. How, could, how did you fit? But you discover some superhuman strength, and something something touches you so deeply, when it's life or death, suddenly you get this tremendous, this hidden resources, hidden strengths, emergent surface. So to every one of us has hidden strength that only emerge in a moment of truth, in a moment of crisis, when push comes to shove, when you have to make the ultimate choice. Are you a Jew or aren't you a Jew? Are you going to deny your Jewishness? Are you going to deny God? Are you going to bow down to the idol? Suddenly, a Jew discovers this, this, this inner strength, these hidden resources, and suddenly it becomes crystal clear what kind of question is. Even though I didn't lead a religious life, and I didn't lead an observant life, and I was so far from the whole thing, and I couldn't care less about the whole thing for years, for decades. I live an impulsive life, I live an indulgent life. And I didn't have the strength to overcome my temptations or my inclinations. But at that moment of truth, you come roaring to life like a lion. It's not a question. It's not an option. I may have been a thief. I may have been a prostitute. I may have been... But it's not a question. And I would, I would rather give up my life. I'd rather be burned to death alive than, God forbid, deny, deny God, deny my Jewishness, or bow down to the cross. There's no force in the universe that can make a Jew bow down and deny his Jewishness in the moment of truth. So, but when you remember this, and that's the mitzvah shema, the mitzvah shema is to remember, to remind yourself, to awaken yourself to that reality. Think about it. Use your mind. Think about it. Think ahead. Think, look deeply inside of you. Think about it. In that moment of truth, in that test, that hidden strength, that hidden love would emerge. Well, tap into it today. Knowing that that exists inside of you, that you have these strengths, this is what gives you the strength to be able to overcome the constant struggle and battle and temptation and conflicts. Because it's tremendously difficult for the Benini, for the average Jew. That tzaddik is inspired 24-7. He has resolved the conflict. He's at peace. His struggle is in a different, a different dimension, from good to even better. But for 99.9% of us, the rest of us, life is tension, struggle, comfort. 
It's difficult. Where do we have the strength to be able to overcome this? The Torah was not written for angels. The Torah was written for humans, for all of us. Very practical, down-to-earth human beings in the year 2007. We're about to enter 2008. With all the temptations and distractions that face us from within and from without, where do we get the strength? The code of Jewish law was not written for tzaddikim. was not written for the Blavi Yitzhak of Bardichim. Or for the Alter Rebbe. The code of Jewish law was written for you and I. Hashem realistically expects us to live up to every word and letter and every paragraph in the code of Jewish law. Every mitzvah in the Torah. Is this a realistic program for real people? Or is this a program for angels? And the answer is, that's why we read the Shema twice a day. You have to remember what your truth is, what your true nature is. You have to remember that you have an intimate relationship with Hashem. You have to remember the hidden strengths that you have. And once you, once you awaken yourself to it, and you touch it and you tap into it, this gives you all the strength you need. The vigor and the vim and the strength and the oomph that you need to be able to do the mitzvah. And to do the mitzvah with relish and with joy. Look at every moment as an opportunity to become an eternal moment. When you can connect with eternity by doing a mitzvah, a single mitzvah. This split second becomes an eternal moment. No one could ever take away from you. You've made an eternal bond, a connection with Hashem. You become unified with the absolute unity of God. And you can do that each and every moment. Through the 613 mitzvah, through the code of Jewish law, which is the revealed will of Hashem, which is eternal, and connects you to Hashem eternal. This is the foundation. And it's the only way possible how a Jew is able to overcome the inner struggle and to deal with the constant tension in our lives, which is our destiny. The constant battle and struggle and tension and discipline and strength that we need in order to do the right thing. And not just not sin, a sin of commission, but also to, to become proactive to actively do everything in our strength, everything in our power, with every fiber of our being, every bone in our body, to constantly and continuously connect with Hashem 24-7.